Good evening, brothers and sisters. I have my greeting to Josh as it's a joy to be in the Lord's house, worshiping together, praising Him, and now hearing His very Word. His Word which created the heavens. His Word has begun the new creation in us by His Spirit. And His Word is our life. So let's turn our attention to it now. Our Old Testament text is Genesis 29:31 through chapter 30, verse 24. This is God's word. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, He has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel. And he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, Here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, A troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy, for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. 
Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. And our New Testament text is James chapter 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Pray with me, brothers and sisters. Let's seek his blessing on his word now to our hearts. O great God, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would powerfully illumine our hearts now with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Shine the bright light of your holy word into our dark hearts. Show us our sin. Show us also our Lord Jesus Christ and all his glory as our Redeemer. And Lord, woo us closer to him. Fill our hearts with love for him. And Lord, teach us to forsake all others and take him. We pray this in his name. Amen. What would a family look like that had been chosen by God to be God's unique vehicle of blessing the whole world. Imagine a family. This is going to be God's family in a special relationship with Him. And this family is going to be richly blessed by God. And this family is going to bless the whole world. All the nations of the earth blessed through this family. What kind of family do you picture? I I picture... A really rock-solid marriage between one man and one woman. They love each other. They care for each other. They, 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 they bear with one another in love. They've got, the, they've got this wonderful unity of purpose. No, 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 no tension in the marriage. Uh, they, they love each other and they love the Lord. And I, and I picture children who are 
obedient and, and, and kind to each other, honoring their parents, full of respect for their parents. I imagine a family where the, the, the grandparents and the in-laws are, are supportive and helpful and respectful and generous. I would not imagine this family that we just read about in, uh, in Genesis 29 and 30. I would not imagine a family like this full of quarreling and bitter jealousy and rivalry and frustration and polygamy and, and, and jealousy and, and all this idolatry so in love with the created things, not the creator. This is supposed to be the family of God, the people of God, the vehicle that God is going to use to bless the world. And it looks like this. It's a mess. One commentator writes, two competitive sisters, a husband caught between them, and an exploitive father-in-law are not the most likely data for a narrative of faith. Right? This, is, this is the most unlikely beginning we could probably imagine for the family of God, for the people of God. This is going to be the family, this is the foundation of the nation of Israel, people of God, that grows up into his, into, 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 into his own nation. And yet here it is, uh, inflicting on themselves so much misery from their own sin. Uh, but, but, that's the point, isn't it? This is God's family, and He's chosen to bless them. He's chosen to be at work, even in the midst of all their sin, their failure, their, 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 their utter stupidity, really. Uh, he's chosen to be at work by His grace in them, even through their sin, to accomplish His purpose, to lay the foundation of Israel, and also, brothers and sisters, ultimately, to bring Christ Himself through this family. Uh, this is the way the grace of God works. And this is wonderful news. This is wonderful news for us because here we see a reflection, at least in part, I think, of, of ourselves and our idolatries and our rivalries and, and our broken families as well and, and our conflicts. And here we also see the grace of God is sufficient even for a family like this, even for, for me in my sin like this. His grace is relentless. Relentless. There's a nice little book uh, by Ian Duguid on the life of uh, Isaac and Jacob. And the title for the book uh, is uh, Living in the Grip of Relentless Grace. And that's exactly what we see, this whole narrative, isn't it? They're living in the grip of God's relentless grace. He will not let His people go. And He will not let us go. Despite our best efforts, He keeps us by His grace. And that's how the passage starts, isn't it? Uh, as, we, as we look at the, how the passage begins, it is the grace of God which launches this whole passage, right? Uh, we have no record of God intervening or acting since He met Jacob at Bethel back in chapter 28. Um, and at, at this point, speaking just kind of the timeline of the narrative here in Genesis, that was seven years ago or so uh, where God spoke to Jacob at Bethel when he was en route out of Canaan uh, to go find his uncle Laban. Um, and, and since that time, we've read of Jacob striving in his own strength, by his own cunning, by his own wits and cleverness and, and, and stamina to, to, to secure blessing for himself, to get a wife for himself, right? So different from, uh, from Isaac's 
uh, from the way Isaac found a wife, right? His father's servant goes and prayerfully seeks the Lord's will and the Lord's wisdom, and the Lord provides. The wife comes home, right? But, but no, Jacob, he goes, and he's going to rely on his own strength. Um, he goes, and the Lord is working, of course, in all this. But we don't read uh, since, since that scene at Bethel. We don't read of God himself intervening and acting explicitly until we get here to verse 31, where we see that God shows grace to the unlovely and the unloved, uh, to, to Leah. It says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The Hebrew literally reads that the Lord saw that, that Leah was hated. Th- think of, think of the, the, the pain she must have been in. She's a brand new bride. She's married to Jacob. He didn't want to marry her. He wanted to marry her sister. Her father tricked him into marrying her. Uh, she spends a week with him. Um, and then he marries the woman he really wanted to marry, her sister, her younger, prettier sister. Right, what kind of bitterness and jealousy and hurt is going to be in her heart? She must have felt like an outsider in her own home, uh, uh, outside of her own marriage, not, 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 really, you know, not really allowed in, uh, sort of an intruder there. Um, but our God, he sees her. He sees that she's unloved. And he loves her. He draws near to her in grace and, and, and compassion, just like right, we, we've seen this theme already with the work of God, haven't we? In, in Genesis, we saw um, Abraham's concubine, Hagar, unloved, cast out into the wilderness, um, and God comes to her. He hears her. He notices her, 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 her grief and her pain and her suffering. Even though she's not deserving, he sees and he takes pity. And so it is here with Leah. He is full of gracious compassion. He takes pity on the humble, even when they haven't asked for it yet. There's no text doesn't tell us that Leah is crying out to the Lord day and night, taking her grief to him. The Lord just comes to her with his pity and his love. Reminds me of... Um, Moses' words in Exodus about how the Lord saw Israel in their slavery in Egypt. Um, there in uh, Exodus chapter 2, it says this about God's eye on his suffering people. It says, the God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Such a comfort there. In times of distress and trouble, I think our instinct is, is to feel like God has forgotten and his ear is turned away and his eye is turned away um, because I'm going through, through this. It, my, my, my problems are, are insignificant to him. Uh, I, I, I'm just a, a nobody. Why would he have his attention on me? Um, but brothers and sisters, uh, as we look at the text here and we see God's pity for Leah and his love for her, It should teach us that, if anything, we should have an even greater confidence in our seasons of want than we do in our seasons of plenty, that God is with us. When when you're going through a season of pain and difficulty and suffering, you should know, if you're part of his family, his eye is on you. Perhaps then, most of all, you should know it. Because this is our God. His eye is on the one who needs his pity. 
and His compassion. We read this over and over in Scripture. Psalm 56, verse 8, the psalmist says that God has kept count of His tossings and all His tears are in His bottle. The Lord promises Hezekiah in 2 Kings 20, verse 5, I have seen your tears. That's precious, brothers and sisters. He did it with Hagar. He did it with Leah. He did it with the whole nation of Israel. He did it with Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 1. He did it with Ruth and Naomi. He did it with Elizabeth. He did it with Mary, the mother of our Lord. And He does it with us. He does it with us. Direct your cry to Him. He hears the humble. So God blesses Leah. And He loves Leah. It's not because she deserves it. It's because of His great pity for her in her suffering. He comes and He opens her womb. And at the same time, He closes Rachel's womb. He's exalting the humble. He's humbling, uh, the, humbling the proud. Um, as a result of this, uh, we see that Leah bears a son. She names him Reuben. The name literally means see, a son. Um, the consonants in the name in the Hebrew actually also make kind of an acronym uh, for what she says next. The Lord has seen my misery, she says. Uh, so she's praising the Lord. It's good. She's praising him for, for seeing uh, her and, and taking compassion on her. She recognizes this son comes from the Lord and it comes from his compassion for me. But then we see something else that she says. Something very revealing. That uh, her faith is mixed with idolatry. Um, She says next, Now therefore my husband will love me. Those are painful words. I sympathize with her in that pain that she's experiencing. She has this anguish. She wants Jacob's love. And she should. He's her husband. He should love her as Christ loves the church, right? He should love her as his own flesh. And he doesn't. And, and it's natural for her to desire her husband's love and, 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 and to expect it. But nevertheless, I think her words show us that she has made an idol out of his love. That it's become this thing that is more important to her than anything else. Um, her desire for her husband to love her and her husband to approve of her. It seems to be more important than God Himself is to her. She's saying, if only Jacob would notice me and love me, then I'd be happy. Then I'd feel secure in this, in this home, in this marriage. If I had His love instead of, instead of the Lord's love, which does not seem to be enough for her. So she thanks the Lord for His Son, but she thanks the Lord because she thinks it will give her some leverage in her relationship and, and, and give her some, some, uh, some love from her husband. So she's seeing the Lord as a means to an end. And we see this trend continue in the next two children. Uh, the next, the Lord gives her another son. She names him Simeon, uh, which is very similar to the word to hear. So the Reuben is related to the word to see. Simeon related to the word to hear. The Lord has heard, she says, that I am unloved. So Reuben's birth did not fix her marriage, um, did not get Jacob's love. Maybe a second son will. Maybe a second one. Uh, The Lord has heard, uh, maybe this will tip the scales in my favor, but it doesn't seem to. She has a third son, and she names him Levi. And it's a heartbreaking thing that she says, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. So she's continuing to see the Lord is giving her the sons, but not as the, she doesn't see the Lord as the great goal 
of her sons. She sees Jacob's love as her great goal. We read James 4, James 4 earlier, which is this devastating uh, diagnosis of spiritual diagnosis of the way idols work in our hearts and the way conflict works out for us. We'll see this same thing kind of worked out in uh, Rachel as well, but, but here uh, we see it in Leah. Uh, James 4, verses 3 to 4, really diagnoses what's going on. It says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James is exposing our idolatry as spiritual adultery. He is uh, saying that to use God as a means to some other end, to, to use God, not to get God, but to get something else that I want more than God, is like um, being an unfaithful wife who wants her husband to sponsor her affair. It's, 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 uh, God, 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 God is uh, not going to be mocked. He did not save you uh, to sponsor your lust for other things. He saved you so that He could have you Himself and love you and be in that sweet covenant relationship with you. He spent His Son's life and His Son's precious blood to secure you for Himself. He is the goal of salvation, not other things. He's the goal of the covenant. Right? It's not wrong for Leah to want her husband's love, but to make that the great goal of her life is spiritual adultery against the Lord. And he, the Lord alone, the Lord alone can satisfy her as well. Um, he, he would be enough for her. Imagine how it would have transformed this story if um, here in Genesis 29 to 30, even one of these characters realized how good the Lord is and how sufficient he is. Imagine if Leah was a little bit more like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, right? Childless. Uh, uh, cries out to the Lord, receives the, the promise of a child. But, but Hannah there in, in chapter 1 gives the child to the Lord. This thing that she wanted almost more than anything else. She wanted for the Lord's sake. And she willingly gives it to the Lord who heard her because she loves the Lord more than the child that he gave. What if, what if Leah recognized the Lord was better than a son and better than her husband's love? What if Leah stopped slaving away for Jacob's attention and for an upper hand over her sister and instead trusted quietly on the Lord, knowing that his love for her was from everlasting to everlasting? What if she knew that his steadfast love is better than life? And she knew and tasted that love our hearts are made to want love, but an eternal and everlasting love. No, no human affection is going to meet that need. She does not need most of all her husband's love, but the Lord's love. And, and, and to know that loved one's and to taste his love and to know his love is the only thing that will overcome the idolatry of our hearts for other things and the way we slavishly work for acceptance with others. Instead of tasting the Lord's love for us. Further, what if, what if she'd remembered that God's love for her does not need to be bought and earned? And she's slaving away for Jacob's love, but 
there's a better love, and it's, a, and it's free to her. It's graciously held out to her. It's given to her. Uh, she, she's, she's in the covenant of grace. She's under the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though he hasn't come yet. She's under the gospel. And, and, and she cannot lose the Lord's love. And it's not conditioned on anything in her, but only in himself. Um, she is loved by God. And she doesn't have to earn it. What, how would it have transformed her experience of, of, of longing for her own husband's love if she'd known the Lord's love in these ways? And loved ones, how would, it, how would it also transform our own hearts and lives if we knew the Lord's love in these ways? There's a hint of hope that it does begin to change her. Um, the Lord gives her a fourth son. Um, but the change doesn't seem permanent. Um, but, but here, she names her fourth son Judah, and she says, now, this time, I'll praise the Lord. So there seems to be something in, in Judah's birth um, that, that uh, her heart here is not anymore striving after Jacob's love, but resting in the Lord's love. This isn't going to stick as we see with her other children. Uh, uh, the, the, she continues to be full of idolatry and rivalry, but here is a, a moment of hope as she seems to trust and praise the Lord. Now, loved ones, what we see here is that the Lord, even though her heart is this mess of idolatry, um, with a glimmer of hope here with Judah's birth, the Lord is blessing her. The Lord is still at work. Even though she is committing spiritual adultery against him, she's, he, he is loving her and blessing her, giving her these children. And he's not just blessing her individually, but he's laying the foundation of the nation of Israel. Her son Levi is going to be the, the tribe that, that, uh, that, that Moses and Aaron come from and the priests come from. And her son Judah is going to be the one that King David and ultimately our Lord Jesus Christ comes from. So the Lord is fulfilling his purpose, even in the midst of, of her sin by his grace. So she praises him. She praises him as the chapter 29 ends. It's a striking contrast then with Rachel. So we, we see this first bit with uh, Leah, the first four sons. Then we switch and we, we see Rachel um, for a bit. Uh, no sooner do we read that Leah is praising the Lord for giving her some ch- these children, we read of Rachel's bitterness that she's barren. Uh, chapter 30, verse 1. She's, uh, now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. I think it's also, uh, we, we can sympathize with Rachel in a sense. Um, imagine that you have a twin sister. You're both married to the same man. And, and, and she keeps on having children, which is a sign of blessing, fruitfulness. And you can't have any children. I mean, how, how would you feel? Um, the temptation uh, to jealousy there would be so strong for her. She has this sense that she's not being blessed by God. And so she says, if only I had children, then I'd be happy. Uh, in fact, um, she, she is saying to, to, that uh, she will not be happy unless she has them, that she would rather die uh, than go on without children. Uh, despairing of life itself here. But she doesn't seek the Lord. Doesn't go and pray. She goes to Jacob. The Lord is not her portion. She wants children an idol out of children. Um, and her cry is not the cry of a broken but trusting heart like Hannah's again in 1 Samuel 1. Um, no, no, no patient waiting like Sarah for the child of promise year after year. Just give me children or I die. 
demanding, grasping, not looking to God to bless. She aims her complaint at her husband. Notice that um, both both uh, Leah and Rachel are are um, are discontent with their lot. They both have a half life. They they both have what the other one wants, uh, but they themselves don't have what the other person has. Um, we see uh, right. Leah lacks her husband's love, but she has children. She's not happy. She wants her husband's love. And then we have Rachel. She lacks children, but she has her husband's love. But it's not enough for her. She, she, wants, she wants children. Uh, they're, they're both discontent. One commentator uh, has this striking insight here. He says these people live half-lives, blocked by sorrow, hostility, and competition. Right? They, they, they both have half of what they expected and what they wanted and what their dream was. That's a very familiar thing for us, isn't it? Uh, this is the way life in this fallen world under the wise providence of God so often goes. You get half of the dream. I mean, you, you, get, you get something good. God gives you some blessing. And there, there, there's good in that. But, oh, it's not enough. I wanted more. There was something more I expected. There's disappointments. There's frustrations. We live these half-lives blocked by sorrow in these ways. How do you respond? Rachel and Leah respond with blindness to the good they have, it seems, frustrated with the Lord's providence, bitter towards uh, those around them, jealous of those around them, rather than responding with hope, trust in the Lord, patience under His fatherly providence, knowing that He hears the humble and that He will one day bring you salvation in His time. This is what they should have done. It's what, a, it's what Jacob should have led them in doing as well. He, he, uh, he, he should have been uh, uh, encouraging both of them to wait on the Lord. He is, he is the patriarch. He is the inheritor of the promises. He is the man of God. He should be leading them and seeking the Lord's blessing and reconciliation with each other. But instead, he seems like he just doesn't want to touch this conflict. He's just going to be passive. Here he says to uh, to Rachel when she cries out to him, um, "Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb?" Such a contrast, isn't it, from uh, from from Isaac and Rebecca and their uh, and their marriage and in their faith for twenty years. Isaac and Rebecca wait for a child. They wait and they pray. Isaac leading his wife and, and praying, quiet faith. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The heir is promised. But uh, there's no prayer here. Instead, Rachel concocts a familiar but sinful plan. Uh, takes her maidservant, gives her servant to Jacob. Uh, this is a common practice in the ancient Near East. Uh, the child of this servant would legally belong to the husband, and by extension, his wife, Rachel, would adopt this child as her own. Uh, so she gives her servant to Jacob. Jacob uh, 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 sleeps with her. They have a son. Rachel names him Dan. God has vindicated me. Um, again, she, seems, she knows children come from the Lord, at least in some sense. But her heart is not fixed on the Lord um, in faith and love. Uh, the, the maidservant conceives again, has another healthy son. Rachel names him Naphtali. Uh, and, and she sees this now as just this competition with her sister. Uh, Ian Duguid's title for this section in his book is called The Arms Race, right? They're just, you, know, you, you, you have a child, I'm going to have two children, right? They're, they're going at it uh, just, to, just to struggle with each other. God is a means to an end. 
He gives me a child so that I have some leverage and some power and one-up on my sister. Um, her idolatry here. And then Leah responds in kind. Does the same thing Rachel is doing. She gives her concubine to Jacob. And she gets two sons. She's fighting fire with fire, as it were, right? Um, uh, she's not looking to the Lord to provide children through her. Now uh, she's... she's uh, She's looking uh, to this earthly means to accomplish her own purpose, not God's purpose. No mention here of praise or thanks to God. Right? She names her children Gad, which comes from the word for lucky. And then she names the next one Asher, which comes from the word for blessed, the good life, uh, the life that everyone would envy. Everyone's going to hear about these children and they're going to be jealous of me. My sister will be jealous of me. And the rivalry continues. Now, now actually, her, uh, her son Reuben gets on it. He, he brings these... Uh, he, 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 um, he's supporting his mother's cause um, with, uh, with, with dad, with Jacob. Um, and he brings these mandrakes. These mandrakes, which are supposed to be... Um, they were thought to be an aphrodisiac. Um, no humility, no prayer, no crying out to the Lord. Right? Just earthly means to accomplish our earthly ends. Our idolatrous ends. Rachel treats these mandrakes, apparently they're hard to come by because she sees them and she wants them and she is willing to do just about anything to get them in hopes that it'll cure her own infidelity. She, uh, excuse me, infertility. She herself has not been able to have any children, just her maidservant has. So she says, give me the mandrakes, Leah. Uh, and in exchange, uh, you, can have, you can have Jacob. Um, this, is a, this is a sad and tragic scene. Apparently, Leah has to buy her way in to her husband, her own husband. Um, she says, Leah, Leah um, comes to Jacob and says, I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. Verse 16. Right, this is a sheer transaction. One commentator notes that um, the Hebrew word translated in verse 16 for he lay with her, Jacob, he lay with Leah for this. This is not used for loving marital intercourse in this book only for illicit or forced sex. There's no, there's no love. There's just transaction. Another writer says, the family's life is rotten and broken. What a mess. But then, verse 17, God listened to Leah. Now the narrator won't let the point go. He's bringing us back to this. He keeps on punctuating this account of this horrible human sinfulness and stupidity and misery with the grace of God. God's not responding to them because of their, you know, in accordance with their sin. He's responding to them out of his covenant love and his grace, and he won't let them go. He continues to hear them, even in the midst of all this sin and misery. And then he blesses, he blesses Leah with another sin. And he gives her another son on top of that. Uh, and then he gives her a daughter as well. She does not deserve any of this. But the Lord gives it. His full, free grace without condition. And then he graces Rachel also. He blesses her finally now with her own son. Right. Rachel has not been seeking the Lord's face, praising Him, praying to Him. She's been using pagan means, mandrakes, to try to get pregnant instead of crying out to the Creator of life. But the Lord gives her a son. 
And when he gives her that son, she names him Joseph, confident he will give her another son. The Lord will add to me another son, she says. The name Joseph means to add. So we, we see this family, brothers and sisters, this broken, miserable, sinful, torn apart family. Idolatry and rivalry. Jacob not leading, not praying, not trusting. And yet, God is blessing them. And he's accomplishing his purposes. He blesses them because this is what he said he would do. He promised Abraham. He promised him. And God does not go back on his word. He is being long-suffering. He is being patient. He's showing grace. We saw this earlier, right? James 4, giving us this hard-hitting expose of our idolatry and our spiritual adultery. But then in verse 6 it says, but he gives more grace. Indeed he does for us. He meets us in our idolatry with his grace. Grace to forgive and grace to change. He blesses us because he is committed to his purpose. He, he blesses the, the, this family because he is doing a great work of salvation. He's building the nation of Israel. He's, he's, uh, he's going to use this, war, the, the, this nation that he's raising up for his sovereign purpose of grace and blessing. He's, he's using the sin. And he's using all these children who were all conceived in this bitter struggle for his glory. To build the people of God. Isn't this exactly what we would expect of our Lord? This is how he's bringing the Christ into the world. This is how he's acting with, in his grace. Our families and our lives are not so much different from this. We've all got idolatries in our hearts and rivalries in our lives. Um, and even if it's not to the extent we read of here, a sin is a sin. Idolatry is idolatry. Rivalry is rivalry. Um, God has not called us into his family because we look like the ideal family to be his vehicle for blessing the world. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is the gospel. God chooses sinners and he blesses them despite themselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's not just a, a nice sounding idea. That's, that's the bedrock reality of our lives. Our sin abounds. His grace abounds all the more. We are the chief of sinners. And all our families and all our hearts are wrought and broken and marred by our own sin. But He is gracious. And our Lord Jesus Christ, our gracious Lord, who did not grasp, cling to His rights, but laid them aside, humbled himself to die for Leah and Rachel and Jacob and you and me. Gladly laid down his life for us. Not, 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 uh, 
not coming to be served, but to serve us and show us His grace and go to the cross. So, loved ones, with such a Savior and with such a God in such a covenant, let us have this mind among ourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Let us put away our idolatries and our rivalries by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the glories of your gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that you have saved us. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us for new obedience and refresh us in your grace by your spirit. Lord, help us put to death our idolatries and our rivalries and hold fast to you. Fill us with your grace. Make your grace abound to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.